Now, would you turn in your Bibles, please, to John chapter 3, John chapter 3, and we'll read from verse 9, John chapter 3 and verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Amen. And we know God will bless the reading of His own inspired Word. Uh, years ago, I was part of a committee set up in the uh, late 80s to organize the visit of uh, Dr. John MacArthur to the province. And um, we were all young at that time, probably in our late 20s, and uh, out of fear of being accused that it was this group that had arranged uh, this visit, we decided that we would fight, invite an older pastor, an old man, onto the committee to take the bad look off it. And uh, he was 62, my age, an old man. So anyway, he uh, uh, came onto the committee. I don't think he even knew who John MacArthur was at that stage, but Anyway, we arranged a meal at the Causeway Hotel, outside Bush Mills, near the Causeway, of course. And anyway, we were there hanging on every word that he said, listening to his, uh, his wisdom, asking our questions. And this older pastor leans over and says to John MacArthur, do you fancy a pulpit swap in the summer? And you could have heard a pin drop. We were aghast that he would have the audacity to ask that question of John MacArthur, do you fancy doing a pulpit swap in the summer? But it reminds me of a case, uh, a similar case that happened to D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody uh, was preaching in Ireland. He was preaching in Dublin, this famous evangelist, and there was a man called Henry Moorhouse. And Henry Moorhouse was a notorious pickpocket he always carried a gun with him. He was a, a gang leader in Manchester and uh, had been in jail on a number of occasions, but he was wonderfully converted uh, in the 1859 revival. He was brought to faith in Christ, and he went then to Dublin to hear Moody preach. And he said to D.L. Moody, I'll come and preach for you sometime. And D.L. Moody was so taken aback, he said, uh, 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 well, that's okay, thinking that he would never turn up. The following year, he turned up in Chicago, and he said, remember, you promised me a preaching date. And uh, D.L. Moody felt out of embarrassment that he couldn't get out of it. And so he said to him, well, you could take the midweek, which always is the safer option. 
He says, you can take the, the midweek on uh, Wednesday night. I'm going off to preach in some other place, but you can preach on the Wednesday night. And so he preached on the Wednesday night. He preached so powerfully that the deacons asked him to preach on the Thursday night. Uh, D.L. Moody came back to Chicago on the Friday only to discover that they had arranged another meeting for Friday night. And uh, he says to his wife, what's all the fuss about? And uh, she says, he doesn't preach like you. And uh, uh, he says, what do you mean? He says, he preaches on the love of God. And so he preached on the Wednesday night, he preached on the Thursday night, he preached on the Friday night, he preached twice on the Sunday, he preached on Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night of the next week, seven sermons in all, and each time his text was the same, John 3, 16. The people were aghast night after night. He got up and said, my text this evening is John 3, 16 and he just preached on that same text to great effect. Hundreds of people were converted night after night, seven nights on John 3.16. And uh, I suppose we can understand that in a way because Martin Luther described John 3.16, hence the illustration, the gospel in a nutshell, because John 3.16 sums up the great elements, the great principles of the gospel and I don't know what his outline was for those seven nights, but I have seven points this evening uh, that we want to rattle through very quickly on this gospel verse. And the first is the need of the gospel, the need of the gospel. The gospel, the word gospel means good news, but the gospel also brings bad news. If there is good news to tell, there is bad news to explain. Notice that little word, perish, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life, that there is a consequence to our sin. There is a, an outcome to our rebellion against God, that we are doomed to perish in His sight. And of course, you can perish gradually, and you can perish finally. So, if I take something out of the fridge and leave it on the counter, through time it, it goes off. It perishes. But then, if, if somebody is lost at sea, they have perished at sea. They have been lost and lost forever. And that word perish is, stands in contrast to the other word in the text, everlasting life or eternal life. And our Lord there is speaking about the eternal consequences of rejecting Christ, the consequences of our sin that ultimately we perish. A man is bipartite. That means he's made up of two parts. He's a body and a soul. Uh, the body perishes gradually when it's buried in the ground, but there is a part of us that is inextinguishable but it's possible for that inextinguishable part of us to perish eternally. The Bible speaks of unquenchable fire, of everlasting shame, a place of no rest where day and night the smoke of the torment of those who are doomed ascend to God, a place where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. John Bunyan 
before he was converted, he said he envied the very dogs in the street because the dogs hadn't an everlasting soul, that they would know nothing of this eternal perishing. And that's our need of the gospel because the consequences of living and dying without the gospel is that we perish. The origin of the gospel. The second thing I want you to notice is the motive behind the gospel. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. I want you to notice that the the gospel begins with God, for God, for God so loved the world. Sometimes we give the impression that Jesus came into the world in order to wring out mercy and grace from the heart of a reluctant father, that, that He died to placate the wrath of God, but God was a little bit frustrated and a little bit annoyed that somehow Jesus had stepped into the breach to pay the price of sin so that sinners may escape. But the, the gospel itself was planned by the Father. It was uh, executed by the Son, and it is applied by the Holy Spirit to human hearts. That verse that we were thinking of this morning, but we impart a secret wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Before time began, God had drawn up this plan. God the Father. Jesus said, all that the Father has given me will come to me. And he who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. And that's why in Revelation, Jesus is described as the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That the, the origin of the gospel, the mainspring of the gospel, lies in the very councils of eternity, in the heart of God. It is He who planned our salvation and planned our redemption. The origin of the gospel. And thirdly, notice the motive behind the gospel. For God so loved, so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. A.W. Pink says the atonement was not the cause, but the effect of God's love. It was the effect of God's love. He loved us because He, he loved us, that God loves us, that God is love. That's what John tells us in his epistle, that God is love. I want you to think about that just for a moment that if we worship a single-person deity, that single-person deity knows nothing of, of love. It doesn't, uh, the, 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 that single-person deity doesn't know what it is to love. But because we believe in the Trinity, we believe that love existed from all eternity, that the Father loved the Son, and the Son loved the Father, and both Father and Son loved the Holy Spirit, that there was love in the Trinity. And that's why God can be defined as love. God is love. And it was the love of God, that love that existed between the persons of the, the Trinity from all eternity that was extended out to the creatures of their creation that the motive behind 
the gospel itself is that extraordinary, that extraordinary love of God. And that little word so expands it out beyond our measuring, doesn't it? For God so loved the world. He didn't just love the world. He so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. And Karl Barth was visiting, the only time he visited America, he was uh, speaking in, I think it was Princeton University, and somebody said to him, Dr. Barth, what is the most profound thought that has ever entered your mind about God? And this is the man who had honorary doctorates from uh, every university that had a faculty of theology from all over the world, and he replied in this way, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's extraordinary to think that God could love puny little creatures, the puny little creatures of His creation. In the book in the brew on Thursday night, we were thinking of the work of God in creation. And I I just mentioned to them that when we were at, at college, the principal took us down to a football field, and at one end of the football field, he he put an orange, which was to represent the sun. And then at the other end of the field, he had Pluto, which now doesn't exist, but anyway, then it did. And uh, that was the, the scale to which our solar system was compared. And, uh, and then he had, to that scale, Earth. And it was like two thousandths of an inch. He had to take a spark plug, and and the little gap in the spark plug represented the diameter of the earth. And our solar system is just part of our universe, which is part of our galaxy, which, well, there, there, nobody knows how many galaxies there are. And, and this little speck of dust that is flying through space with tiny little microbes crawling upon it, God so loved them that He gave His one and only Son. A number of years ago, they found uh, in a psychiatric hospital these words written on the wall. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky? God is love. That's the motive behind the gospel. The need of the gospel we perish without the gospel. The origin of the gospel, it begins with God, for God. It's His plan that existed from all eternity, the motive behind the gospel, the love of God. And notice the scope of the gospel, for God so loved the world. The world, He loved the world. This would have been a devastating concept to Nicodemus because he was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was a a ruler, a politician, ruler of the Jews. Jews, Jews, Jews. It was the Jews that God loved. It was the the Jews that uh, God called. It was the Jews that God separated from the rest of the world. He didn't want the Jews to form relationships 
with the world. In fact, in all of ancient Jewish literature, the Old Testament and all other literature included, there's not one mention of God's love for the world. And yet here Jesus says to this, this ruler, this teacher in Israel, steeped in the traditions of Judaism, that God's love is extended to the whole world, that He loves Gentiles too. The Jews thought to themselves, forget the world. Let the world, let the Gentiles go to hell. That's what they deserve. It's the Jews that God has saved, and it's the Jews that God has blessed. But the gospel is for all, all kinds of people, all kinds of people from every culture, creed, class, and color, who, whoever, whoever believes, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever, whoever, no restrictions, no barriers, no limitations, black and white, Catholic and Protestant, rich and poor, religious and non-religious, moral and immoral. God loved a world of sinners lost. Around the throne there will be people on the great day of the Lord drawn from every tribe and nation, people and language. You know how then the, the apostles struggled with that concept that the world is embraced uh, in, in the gospel and how then after Cornelius' conversion in Acts chapter 10, Peter says, I now know that God does not show favoritism, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him is acceptable to Him. And I don't care who you are or what background you're from this evening, this gospel message, the gospel that's contained in John chapter 3 applies to you. The need of the gospel, the origin of the gospel, the motive behind the gospel, the scope of the gospel, the provision in the gospel. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, the, authorized, or the ESV says. The authorized version says, gives, gave His only begotten Son. His only begotten Son. The, the word is used of, of um, Isaac. Abraham's son. He was his one and only son. It's used of the widow of Nain that he had, she had a one son, a one and only son. And I think that's why the NIV probably captures the meaning best, that he, he gave his one and only son. We are sons of God by creation, the Bible tells us, that there's one God and Father of all, that we by being made in His image, are His offspring. We are sons of God by creation. We are sons of God. If you're a believer, by adoption, you're adopted into the family of God, and you can come before the uh, Father and call Him your Father, the great God of the universe. But He was uniquely and supremely the Son of God. You see, sonship has a beginning. It has a start at, at birth or by adoption. We become sons of our Father. But He had no beginning. There was no beginning to His sonship. He was eternally the Son of God. 
And so he is uniquely and supremely the Son of God. That's why Paul tells Timothy that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He wasn't just born into the world. He came into the world that he existed from all eternity. He was the eternal Son of God. And he so loved the world that he gave him to the world. He gave him to what? He gave him to who? Well, he, he, he gave him into the world. He gave him in human form. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He gave him up to the cross because he became the Son, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. He, he gave Him to be a substitute for us, that He who knew no sin became sin for us, that He became the, the final sacrifice, the final and great atonement for sin. He gave Him to the cross, that our sin was laid on Him so that through His death we could be legitimately and justifiably forgiven and reconciled to our God. That's the, the provision in the gospel that He gave His one and only Son. And I suppose nobody knows the, the pathos that lies behind that expression except those who have lost a son. The need of the gospel the origin of the gospel, the motive behind the gospel, the scope of the gospel, the provision in the gospel, the blessing with the gospel. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life, says the authorized version. The NIV says e eternal life, literally the life of the age to come. So, it's not just speaking about the quantity of life, that the fact that you will live forever, it includes that, but it's speaking of, of uh, uh, the quality of life, a life that's lived in God that begins here and now and stretches into all eternity. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. He came to give us this spiritual life. Do you remember what God said to Adam and Eve in the garden? He said, the day that you eat that fruit, you shall die. And the day that they ate that fruit, they did die, not physically, but they died spiritually. They, they died in terms of their relationship to God. They had no sense of His presence, no fellowship with Him. They, they died. And in, in the gospel, we, we receive eternal life. As Paul says, we are made alive to God. We are brought into the presence of God. And we can enjoy a relationship with God, a, a relationship with, for which we were designed and intended. We're all familiar with different forms of, of life. So, so I could uh, say that this is a, a pulpit, that this pulpit existentially exists. It's here. I can touch it. I can feel it. It's here. It's, it's a, a living thing. But then I could put beside that a fish, and the fish is alive in a way that the pulpit isn't. It's, it's moving. It has life in it. And then I could put beside the, the fish um, a, a dog, and the dog has, 
has a higher life form than, or is a higher life form than the fish because it can respond to me. I don't think anybody would dare think that a, their pet goldfish responds to them with affection, but a dog can. Then I could put an intelligent creature beside the dog, like a, an elephant or a, a dolphin, a highly intelligent uh, animal, and they have life in it in a way that the dog and the fish and the pulpit don't. And then I could put a human being beside the, the dolphin, and he's a higher life form than the dolphin, the dog, and the fish, and the pulpit. And then I can put a Christian beside the human being, and he is alive in a way that the non-Christian isn't alive, that he, he's alive to God, that he has infused in him, into him spiritual life so that he can have a, a relationship with God, that he can know his God. And this is what's promised in the gospel, that he will grant eternal life, not just the, the quantity, although it includes that stretching into all eternity, but uh, this ability to communicate, to have fellowship, to have relationship with God. And to know that when our eyes close in death, that that Nothing can interrupt or, or break that relationship, but that relationship continues for all eternity. So the need of the gospel perish, the origin of the gospel for God, the motive behind the gospel love, the scope of the gospel the world, the provision in the gospel. He gave His one and only Son, the blessings uh, with the, the gospel, eternal life. And the last thing I want you to notice is the condition to the gospel. What we need to understand is that when Jesus uh, delivered this good news in John 3.16, He attaches a condition to the promise. The scope of the gospel, the objects of the gospel, the declaration of the gospel is to the whole world. Go unto all the world, said Jesus, and preach the gospel. But not everyone receives the blessing of the gospel. There are some who still will ultimately perish. And there are some who do not receive eternal life. This gospel promise is not to whosoever, but it's to whosoever believeth. It's to whoever believes. Our Lord attaches a condition to this promise that this deliverance from perishing and this granting of eternal life is given to and only to those who believe. It is possible to be excluded from these promises. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You must be believe. You must believe. Well, someone might say, well, well, I do believe. I do believe that there's a God in heaven. I do believe that He sent His Son into the world and that His Son uh, died upon the cross to take away sin. I can agree with every word of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, the Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, dead, and buried, descended into hell, and on the third day he was raised to life. 
And you can come to the Apostles' Creed, and you can have a pen, and you can tick every statement and say, yes, I believe, I believe, I believe. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. James says, even the demons believe and tremble. What is the faith, then, that Jesus requires when speaking of the benefits that come to us through the gospel? What does He mean? Well, Jesus leaves us in absolutely no doubt as what He means. Look at verse 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Jesus uses an Old Testament illustration to explain exactly what He means when He calls us to faith, when He calls us to believe. He's referring back to an incident in the Old Testament during the wilderness wanderings of the people of Israel in Numbers chapter 21. The people have been traveling through the the desert, and they began to mumble and complain against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. You see the contradiction there. We have no food and water, and we loathe this miserable food. But there was food, but it was that food that they were complaining about. Not manna again. Manna sandwiches, manna soup, fried manna, baked manna, boiled manna, manna burgers, manna sausages, manna stew. We loathe this manna. A manna that had been miraculously and graciously given by God to sustain them in the wilderness. The Lord was so angry with these ungrateful people that He sent a a plague of Well, the authorized version says fiery serpents, and I think the fiery means to the consequence of being bitten that it would induce a fever into the person that had been bitten. And uh, many of the Israelites were bitten and died. And the people came to Moses, and they acknowledged their sin, and they asked him to pray for them. And the Lord told Moses to make a serpent, a brass serpent, to put it on a pole and erect it in the camp. And in Numbers 21 and verse 8, and it shall come to pass that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, the fiery serpent on the pole, he shall live. And you see, that look was a look of faith, because when they looked at that pole in the wilderness with the brazen serpent on it, they were acknowledging that they had a problem, that they were going to die, that they needed help from outside themselves. They acknowledged that there was one solution to that problem, the snake on the stick that was lifted up. That was the only remedy. And they then exercised faith that they believed when they looked in faith upon that a fiery serpent on the bronze pole, that God would do what He had promised to do, and He would heal them and deliver them. And look at what Jesus says in verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, lifted up high. How is the Son of Man going to be lifted up? It's going to be lifted up on the cross. He's going to be condemned to die, and they, by crucifixion, would lift Him high. And everyone who believes in Him will have eternal life. 
On the cross, He was lifted up. Lifted up was He to die. It is finished was His cry. He was lifted up on the cross. That's God's remedy for sin. Our sin was laid on Him. And He was punished in our place. And just like these Israelites who looked at that bronze serpent in the wilderness, so when we look to the cross, we're acknowledging that we have a problem, that our sin is offensive to God, and if left to ourselves, we will perish. We are acknowledging that there is only one way to deliverance and one way of salvation, and that's through the cross. And we believe that God's promise is true, that when we look to Him and trust in Him, that we will be delivered from our sin. See, the question is not, do you believe in God? That's not the question. The majority of people believe in God. The question is, do you believe God? Do you believe God? Do you believe what He says, that when, when you look to the cross, when you rest in the cross, when you trust in the cross, when you put your trust in Jesus and His blood shedding on the cross, that all your sins in a moment can be forgiven, that there's no other way, there's no medication that you can apply, there's no self-help program that you can engage in, there's no wrestling or fighting with the snakes. You look to God's appointed means of healing and believe that that is sufficient for your soul's condition. John Calvin says, the true looking of faith is placing Christ before our eyes and believing that in Him the heart of God is poured out in love. Fixing Christ before our eyes and believing that in Him the heart of God is poured out in love. Do you believe that? There is one way, there's one remedy. It's by believing. What does it mean to be believe? To, to fix your faith, to fix your focus, to fix your hope upon Jesus Christ and Him lifted up to die in the place of sinners. Are you looking to Him? Do you acknowledge that you have a problem? You have a problem, but do you acknowledge that you have a problem? Do you acknowledge that the cross is the only solution to that problem? And do you believe in the promise that if you, you believe in Him, if you look to His death for the grounds of your acceptance before God, that in a moment you will be forgiven and reconciled to a holy God? Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in Him might have eternal life. Do you believe? Ask the question. Do you believe what God has said? Are you, you looking to the remedy, to the only remedy that God has provided? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The need of the gospel. There's a real danger here that we might perish. The origin of the gospel, it begins with God. For God, for God so loved the world. The motive behind the gospel, love. The Calvary is the great demonstration. It's the great proclamation of the love of God, the scope of the gospel. It's the world. It's for a world of sinners lost. The provision in the gospel that we have eternal life, the blessing of the gospel, that we are forgiven through Him and the condition of the gospel. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him, believes in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen.